Welcome, everyone, to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm one of the two media strategy nerds, Eitan, and with me, as always, is Carl. Hey, Carl. Hey. That was the smoothest intro we've had so far. I liked everything about that. Do it again. It only took I mean, 11 episodes. Yeah. Should I start again? Okay. No, I, 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 I didn't mean, like, do it again, again. Just like, in the future, let's do that. <laughs> Okay, we lost all the smoothness already, 20, yep. 20 seconds in. So this is going to be a very fast and loose episode. It is our second Ask Us Anything or AUA episode. So instead of having to manufacture questions from friends and family this time, we actually do have questions from people, which is really exciting. Uh, really fun going on this journey and being able to actually have conversations about this with real people. 100%. And also getting questions that are, as you'll all see, both very interesting and also a good mix of things that it feels like we have takes on <laughs> and know about, and also things that we might not as much and that we're going to have to do some research to to get back to you all uh, well-informed. It's going to be fun. And I think, I don't know, for me, I feel much more mature as a podcaster, which that is a disgusting phrase, but anyway, I, I feel much more mature as a podcaster than I did the last time we did one of these. Like, I feel like, oh, this is something normal. I can do this. I'm enjoying what I'm doing here, rather than terrified. Yeah, I also never know how to answer. Like, when it comes up, like I never bring it up with people. Yeah. But if it comes up, and people are like, oh, so you're one of those that like now everyone has a podcast. I'm like, <laughs> what? What do you want me to say? Yes, haha. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, and then, I don't know, like, I'm talking to, like, Alex's friends or something, and they're like, oh, what's your podcast about? And I'm like, well, it's media strategy. And they're like, oh, what's media strategy? And I'm like, um, it's like the metagame of how things get made in Hollywood. And they're like, oh, that sounds boring. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was the other day, it was in, in a class in Stanford with mostly PhDs in energy. And I was introducing myself and it's like, yeah, so I did, I'm an engineer, I did tech and consulting, I did an MBA, now I work in like private machine learning. And they were like, oh, and what's your COVID hobby? I'm like, oh, I made a podcast. And they're like, oh, what's it about? Tech, engineering, privacy preserving machine learning? I'm like, uh, <laughs> nope. It's around media and entertainment. We talk a lot about Disney. <laughs> Talk about uh, imposter syndrome, talking to these incredibly smart people and just, uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's fine. Like, it's a nice thing for you, though, was, like, for me at this point, that my whole, like, career is staked around, like, me understanding this stuff and doing it right. And, like, that could be very, very well be your career in five to ten years, depending on, or, like, two years, depending on how you shift things in your life. But for me, it's like, oh, God, like, if I have a bad take, like, I'm going to be defrauded and this is going to be just awful for my career or whatnot. And I'm like, Oh no, it's not really like there are a million bad takes on Twitter and medium every day. Like worst case, I'll just drown out with the rest of them. Yep. You throw a rock and it lands on a bad take on Twitter. I think that's exactly right. One of my favorite tweets is somebody described Twitter. Okay. Aton and I are both big Twitter users and being on Twitter is like, it's like living a like a sad second life where you're just kind of like in this incredibly microcosmic culture and like watching what's happening. And somebody on Twitter once said, Twitter is 
like a game and the point of the game is never to be the the winner because the winner is the person that everyone focuses their energy on all day <laughs> because like there's always like one or two people that have some stupid take and everyone just dog piles on them and it's funny for like two days and there's a new target yeah you get a ton of followers for like a day or whatever <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, there's just some crazy stuff on there but yeah um, no don't get don't get self-aware on me please continue with your takes <laughs> i love your takes well um as far as tech in that was a really sweaty segue okay <laughs> in this week's news let's talk to about another tech company that's not okay leave this in this is a terrible segue but we're just gonna have a quibby quibby right now <laughs> yep that works yeah that so wasn't quib- a quibby transition <laughs> no it was a um a long b i don't know Ugh. yeah but I'll take it. I mean, transition seems like it might be longer than Quibi's life on this planet. So, Hey-o. in news related to that, we have some interesting gossip that came out in a Politico article today, which has probably been floating in the ether beyond that, but I was first made aware by this article. And Joe Biden, if he wins the election, is considering Meg Whitman for a cabinet seat. <sighs> <laughs> the, f- <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind when I think about it, uh, the first one, first is of course how she ran f- to be governor of California as, as a Republican and got beaten by Jerry Brown. That was the first thing. But the second thing <laughs> is that she just seems to get like she's like exactly at the right place at the right time, right? Yeah. When Quibi was coming up, she was just maybe HP, maybe living. Perfect timing to try it. And then Quibi is not working, and he's like, oh, "It's not working." Perfect moment to leave. Yeah. So it seems like she's just, um, as a non-American networking, it's something that it's a it's a fascinating topic for me. She seems to be very good at networking, and you know, hearing, "Oh, this might happen. Consider me. This might happen. Consider me." Yeah. Well, I guess that's what happens when you're a CEO of so many companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting development. Um, I will not say anything of the fact that she is a Republican for a Democratic cabinet position. But something that is fascinating to me is the fact that Jeffrey Katzenberg is a very famously like diehard centrist Democrat vote, Democrat supporter. Like he hosts fundraisers all the time. Beyond that, I was watching every like six months or so. I have the urge to watch like a single episode of the West Wing, like not any episode like if i'm gonna really watch one i'll do like two th- cathedrals or something but usually it's like i want like sorkin for an hour and i turned on so an, you watch a, one episode there's yeah, one episode I'm good you like watch every couple of but you watch the same episode every couple of months no i, I switch it like, oh, okay if like so, actually it is like half the time it is two cathedrals and the other half the time it's a random west wing episode but i'm gonna act here like i understand what these two episodes are okay continue okay. that sounds there's great a right? random episode that i just put on where the president has to go to Los Angeles for the for the day for like a fundraiser, and the whole fundraiser it's Bob Balaban playing Jeffrey Katzenberg. It's not actually Jeffrey Katzenberg, but it's very obviously looks and sounds like Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he's swilling Diet Coke, and it's like this is <laughs> weird that he's like such an established like Democratic donor that they have a West Wing episode about him. It would wouldn't it be funny if the what how Meg Whitman got the connection to be here is because of Jeffrey Katzenberg. It'd be very funny. He just turns out against him. Yeah. So when Meg Whitman 
wins the presidency in 2028, we can thank B movie. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you can thank B movie and ants. Um Okay, that was a query query. Let's see. Oh, it feels like Every week we have a quibi quibi that is weird, and I'm like, okay, it can't get any weirder. There, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I'm looking forward to next week. Yeah, I, I'm loving quibi quibi. It's the movie pass of 2020 when so many bad things had the like potential to be the movie pass of 2020. Yeah, yeah, the movie pass of 2020. That's a new bar. <laughs> uh, moving on to the next. Uh, section of the news um this week it was announced that disney plus is adding content advisory kind of notices to different pieces of content that they have there these basically take the form of uh, a text that appears both in the screen before you play and right after you play it which says you know this piece of content might depict uh, characters or views that are outdated and do not represent and they were i don't know if they were strong to say like that might be considered racist or misogynistic or whatever but they just added this piece of content uh, to the top of things like uh, Peter Pan and Pocahontas and probably a, a ton of things, you know, culture changes yeah. and things that were okay 50, 80 years ago are definitely not right now. Something that is interesting to me is that it seems like uh, Gone with the Wind in HBO Max really started this, right, a couple of months ago when they took it out of HBO Max so they could put it and it sparked this conversation of, you know, should content that depicts these types of outdated views or then that today are considered, you know, not okay, be part of the conversation or should they be kind of public? And what I come back to, which I would love your thoughts on, Carl, is again on our unreleased episode about the history of Splash Mountain, we talk a lot about Song of the South. Mm-hmm. which is this movie that um, Disney put in a vault and it has never come out and they're never bringing it out because it's very racist. But now it seems like they are kind of falling falling on the side of like, we want to have things out as long as we put content, but mm-hmm. it seems like this is beyond the line. Just curious, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I have two thoughts here. First thought, is humble brag. I'm reading Dune right now, so I <laughs> are you understanding? Be honest. Yeah, I mean it, it's super readable. Like it's like okay, it's more Harry Potter than like Arthur C. Clarke. Like you're good, but the foreword is really interesting. It's Neil Gaiman kind of writing about six books that Penguin Random House released in this Penguin Galaxy series with this, these really beautiful hardbound versions. So, yeah, I, I'm i reading Dune, and I splurged for a nice copy of Dune. But anyway, it's just this gorgeous thing that really sets you in the mood of like what this text means, where it came from, what it ended up becoming, and what it influenced. And context is like a beautiful, great thing for a work of art like that. Dune, to my knowledge, is pretty unproblematic. And it just, like, it enriches it to understand it. And that's why something like John Carter can work on its own as a sci-fi book when you understand the context, but you try and make a movie without contextualizing its its place in history with sci-fi, and it just seems like some lame, hackneyed, like, nonsense. So I think context is good no matter what, and I think that's really great and cool that they're, they're doing that. Though it really is... <laughs> Like, 
this is where Warner Brothers was at before they put Garnered with the Wind on HBO Max. Like, Warner Brothers was already doing this with, like, Looney Tunes cartoons. And now they have, like, a TCM style, if not just a TCM host, contextualizing the film before the film for you. Like, that is how I think you need to do this, is, like, just completely go for it, rather than, like, putting the equivalent of an FBI piracy warning in front of the the video. Yeah, and I feel like that will be... uh... Yeah, when you say that, I a couple of months ago, I showed Ariella for the first time The Three Caballeros, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite movies. I grew up with it. It showed Mexico, and I hadn't watched it in a yeah. long time. And when we started watching, like, every five minutes, there was a thing that was like, uh, I didn't remember yeah. this, or, uh, I didn't remember this, or, oh, she's not going to like it, or, uh, this is so uncomfortable. And I feel like that is exactly what was missing, right? It's like, people yeah. realize when they watch these things. It's not like they, they just gloss over them. So I feel like, yeah, contextualizing them, and it, it's a good first step. It It's a good first step, but I think we're beyond the need for first steps and beyond the time when people should be taking first steps. But yeah, it's a good first step. And I, I think you were also kind of hinting at whether or not it is good to keep these things in the light rather than hide them. Mm-hmm. Because, like, are you profiting off of these outdated things and mistreatments of people and, and and entire classes of people and uh in in our lost episode that's not lost about song in the south <laughs> we take a lot from karina longworth's podcast you must remember this she did a mini series called six degrees of song of the south very worth listening to and you within must that remember this she has the most incredible enunciation and and voice of any podcaster I've ever heard. It's it's a treat. It's a lot, but it's a treat. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's really it's just really great. But like on on Twitter after this series had come out for it was like a month after, she was talking about this exact issue and whether we should hide these things or almost celebrate them or at least contextualize them. And she had a point around, like, if you hide these things, they become fetish objects. So something like, I don't know, like the Turner Diaries or like some controversial book or movie yeah. or something. Or like like a Dinesh by Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Or like a Dinesh D'Souza film that doesn't, doesn't get distribution. Like, these things are, like, not really that interesting or worth engaging with. And they're kind of bad or boring, but, or they are very bad and often very boring. But people like twist them in their minds of being these interesting things that are worth our time and worth thinking about engaging with just because they're hard to access. Yeah, it, it almost has the the opposite effect. I mean, like every film school teaches Triumph of the Will, not because it's like, because film school support Hitler, but because it's important to take what lessons Lenny Riefenstrahl, like, imparts about, like, shooting these things, while also, like, one, decontextualizing it, because a lot of the professors will just, like, show clips from it, because that is the way to do it. Like, it's less effective that way. You can neuter it. But two, also, like, talk about what film and the art was used for, like, and what evils it was used for. Like, it's about, like, kind of not shielding away from that. 
but there are ways to teach it and talk about it worth versus celebrating and profiting from. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I haven't watched any of the things in Disney Plus that has that have the content advisory right now. I'll report back to see how no. it lands. It's probably very simple. Um, speaking of Disney, uh, speaking some of Disney theme park being news. evil, mm, less know. a little less than evil. I don't know how I feel mm, about this one. Okay, know. yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> we've been we've been keeping you updated on the basically California government guidance to allow the reopening of theme parks. Uh, we talked about how a couple of weeks ago Disney laid off 28,000 people, mostly in the parks and experiences business unit, and how it seemed like they just couldn't reach an agreement, not even reach an agreement, but that they were pushing back to the government because whatever they were going to release was too stringent. So California actually released today finally the, um, the guidance for opening theme parks in general. Uh, a, a couple of things. The, the first one is none of the things that they ask theme parks to do seems ridiculous so my first reaction yeah. was like why did it take so long it's like you need to have masks you need to desanitize you need to enforce blah 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 you can't have more than x percent of people blah blah it was like relatively clear yeah one of the key takeaways is that for big theme parks so disney universal i don't even know if the the six flags of the world but they can only reopen if the county where they're at is at what California calls like yellow level, which is basically the lowest level that California has, which I think it's one or less than one cases per 100,000 citizens, wow. which is incredibly low. And I don't think any any county in California is at, it's there right now. And even if you hit that, they can only open at 25%. Yeah. I think, yeah, everyone's going to be outside of that. I know LA County is purple right now, which is like the worst level. Anaheim is... I think orange or red, it's the one right below that, but they can't open anytime soon. I am actually trying to pull up this these guidances right now because there's a line in here that was interesting, which is, okay, so orange tier counties. So orange tier can, counties, can capacity is limited to 25% of total facility occupancy based on the fire department occupant limit or 500 people, whichever is fewer. So, like, that's what Orange is. So, 500 people could go to Disney. That's, like, how many people would need to work to open Disney. <laughs> for the, so, the parking lot. Yeah, exactly. So, it says operations are permitted only for smaller parks in Orange. So, every theme park you're you're thinking of, like, is totally not applicable here. Yeah, and Disney was very quick to reply and they had a statement which basically said uh, the parks will have to continue to be closed for the foreseeable future yeah. and then kind of pushing back to the government and saying the you know that they've showed that they can reopen safely because mm -hmm. all the other parks all over the world i think except paris are open yeah. and uh yeah we've talked a lot about where we land on this we don't want them to open if it's not safe However, yeah. there seems to be a world where this can be done safely while supporting the people that work there. Just as a lot of things in this economy seems like. I wonder how much they're spending on lobbying around this versus how much they're spending on supporting Anaheim's COVID relief efforts. Right, at the same time. Yeah, no, like, yeah absolutely. There are multiple levers that can be pulled here to, to reach a solution. I, I don't think these are unreasonable at all. I think these are 
very reasonable and I I kind of like the focus on protecting the little guy whether it's like I don't know a zoo or raging waters or whatever fits into mm-hmm. this tiny thing like I think that's cool that like you're bolstering this economy it's something that like LA and the city the state of California have really wanted to do is keep things local so I don't actually remember where this document lands. We'll get into that in a second. But uh, there was talk that like only residents of L.A. or Anaheim could go to Disneyland if it opened. And that like has an effect on, like, you're, they're trying to chill, have a chilling effect on tourism and people coming in and bringing COVID in. And I think by focusing on these small parks, that, like, keeps it local. And that keeps it kind of contained and small and a nice bubble. I think that's like, very smart. Yeah, I don't. I didn't see anything around that. I don't think yeah. they had that. But I, didn't think I think, that. yeah, I think that that's also the main difference between reopening like movie theaters or outside restaurants, which is like bringing people coming from everywhere else, right? Yeah. If, if Anaheim or whatever California reaches a level that it's low enough, and so many other parts of the country are not there, you don't want that travel. Well, that was kind of a downer, uh, but let's <laughs> move on to the questions. <laughs> anyway, story, yes. Anyway, wanna, why don't you read the first one, Carl? So this is a question that may or may not be Disney relevant this year. I have no idea how relevant it is to anybody this year, but it's where do we stand on pushing the Oscars beyond where they stand right now, which is what, April 2021, yeah. I think? I think so. What do you think? Yeah, so I think where, where this question comes from is there's been a lot of talk, whatever that means online, that if it makes sense to keep Oscars and I guess awards in general uh, kind of happening where they're happening. I think Oscars are specifically impacted because we've talked about how they had specific rules that uh, movies had to be released in the theater for a, a little bit of a little bit of time to for them to qualify for the Oscars. Uh, so they've really been the most impacted one. They changed the rules for this year to also include things that were originally planned to be released on theaters. If they move directly to streaming, they're going to still be considered. They move the eligibility deadline. It's now not December. I think it's also closer to April. But the truth is that a lot of movies that were going to come out on theaters just were pushed. They didn't go to streaming, so they wouldn't even fall within that category. And... At least for me, like when I think of awards and when I think of the Oscars, they they don't necessarily play a role of, you know, they only should exist if a lot of amazing stuff happened during that year. For yeah. me, it's just a way to reflect on whatever happened on the past year. And I feel like these years like these actually make them just more interesting and more introspective and more... You know, sure, the movies are going to be the same that would have been on theaters, but the year looked different. And on a year that looked different, this is kind of what came out on top and what is worth celebrating. So I don't see that. I don't think it makes sense. Uh, I can probably feel you feel the same way. This is a chance for the Oscars to actually mean something and not just be a a meaningless PR thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the Oscars are fun. They're great. Like, it's a bizarre, like, sports betting system for figuring out who's going to like have paid the most money to schmooze the right people to win an award where the voting is insane. Like it's, it's 
Oscar prognostication is so fun, and it is like a weird barometer of culture when something like Parasite wins versus something like Green Book winning. But that's like what's fun about this year is it's a lot. It's a chance to celebrate a lot of things that normally wouldn't win this like hackneyed race of money and schmoozing and parties and just big budget spending. Instead, something like okay, so the Birds of Prey movie is not going to get nominated, but something like Palm Springs maybe could be nominated. I highly mm-hmm. doubt that. But you could have these fun, smaller things that normally don't get attention get the nominations. Like, are we going to be looking at the down the barrel of a of a Sorkin Fincher? Who else is this year? Like, it's going to be a Sorkin Fincher race this year, probably. And like, that's like kind of uninteresting. But I don't know. Like, there's a chance something more interesting could come out of all of this. Promising Young Women? It's in December right now. You want to hear my... Here's my prediction. But don't spoil it. You've no, no, no. watched it. I haven't I've, watched it. Okay, I was actually going to completely pivot away from it. It's a great movie. I hope everyone okay. gets to see it. Pay for it on VOD. It's totally worth it. Anyway, I have my first Oscar prediction. Already? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so Trial of the Chicago 7, like, whatever. It's, like, it's Sorkin, so it's, like, mentally watchable, but, like, I I don't know. Sacha Baron Cohen's fine and interesting in it, but I think this is, like, totally the sort of thing where it's, like, a movie that's right at, like, the cultural moment. It's an actor that, like, everyone recognizes and kind of likes when he shows up in dramatic work. And Borat 2 is coming out this weekend, and it's, like, a one-two punch mm-hmm. of, like, pushing Sacha Baron Cohen back into the stratosphere. And I think that, like, right now, we don't have anybody like that that's really, like, wowing this year in performances on, like, that stage where, like, there's a cultural moment for them, like Donald Glover in May, like, three years ago. Like, I think this could be Sacha Baron Cohen's cultural moment that, like, nobody's going to really take away from. And I think he could walk away with a supporting actor trophy. Or they Hmm. could category fraud it into actor. I don't know. Yeah, we should just say Trial of the Chicago 7 out this week on Netflix. Yeah, the exactly. Sorkin movie. Yeah, okay, then if I'm going to do one super early, and I, this is not going to be original at all, if I you push me to do a prediction, chat with Boseman yeah. for the Five Bloods, supportive actor. He's another one. Like, Heath Ledger type of situation. He is having a, more of a Heath Ledger moment, but he's also still is having a cultural moment. Like It's a year without Marvel, which makes Marvel's... Marvel more interesting in a, like in the vacuum absence of it almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to five bloods. He's also in some sort of supporting role in uh, what is it? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yep, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yep. Okay, he plays like a a band musician. Okay, that's like redundant, but he he's something like that. <laughs> I could see that being something that like gets him buzz for that too. So like one of those awards being nominated and whichever one he's nominated and he probably wins. Like, I think that's a very strong possibility. Okay. And I think it's also good that there is a year where no Mexican director is going to win. You know, we'll let somebody else win for this year and then we'll see what happens next year. Yes. There we go. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, Maybe, oh, Pinocchio is coming next year from Guillermo del Toro. I don't think he's going to win anything, but... Anyway. I mean, it's it's animated. It'll win animated if if that. The, it'll never get out of the animation award category. <laughs> Too pessimistic there. 
Well, they, uh, he doesn't have to win Best Picture. He just has to win Best Director. <laughs> anyway, I, I, where is he? Okay, what? No, I was just making a face because I, I knew you were about to segue into animation off of us talking about animation. But it's also a good segue. Wait. <laughs> Question for you because I can't answer this. Is there ever a world where a director of an animated movie wins Best Director? Oof. I really don't think so because, okay, Brad Bird could win. An established live-action filmmaker could potentially win. I think those are the categories because the Sorry, Academy has like... A, a director for an animated movie, not an animated... So not Brad Bird moving to live-action no, 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 and winning no. for live-action. Oh, okay, yes. I'm talking about like... Wes Anderson directing a stop-motion movie could win, mm -hmm. or Brad Bird, probably specifically of animation directors, because the Academy has a huge, like, auteurist bent when they look at directors. Like, they definitely do look at the director as kind of a major authorial influence on the work. And animation is such a collaborative process by the fact that, like, it's impossible to make something of that scale by yourself without taking decades and I think people really want, like, someone who, it seems like their identity is baked within the film. Mm -hmm. And that's something Bird, like, A.O. Scott's appraisal of Ratatouille really reshaped how the critical landscape was looking at Bird and animation as a, like, autorial art form. So I think someone who has a, like, capital D director branding could win that award so you're saying there's a chance for Guillermo del Toro in Pinocchio I'll take it perfect you heard it first Carl thinks Guillermo del Toro might win for Pinocchio on Netflix moving on <laughs> thank you um, you're well well I didn't say it so nobody can soundbite me out of that he I said like it del Toro like I Shape of Water was my best picture winner that year like I, I'm not anti del Toro am I a little anti in your retune a little bit but like <laughs> The tour and Quarter are great. After the Revenant, after the Revenant, <laughs> I am as well. Oh man, that movie. Anyway, yes. Speaking of animation, <laughs> uh, the next two questions that we got were actually around uh, this topic, coming out of our episode a couple of weeks ago of the, st the state of Western animation. And one question that we got right after that episode was from our friend Kevin, who was here for our Emmys episode, which was basically, you know, you talk about Western animation. What do you think about Studio Ghibli? And Studio Ghibli, please give us some context of what Studio Ghibli is for those that might not know. Yeah, it's Hayao Miyazaki, Japanese animator. It's his firm. And I was a Ghibli virgin until like four years ago. I started with Spirited Away because that's like the big one that everyone tells you to watch that everyone like loves. And I fell for it. I've seen the majority of, of their films by now. And... I, it's lovely. It, it's something that it's, if Disney is kind of like the primal Western canon when it comes to like children's animation, it's so refreshing to look at something that's like evolved out of its own, its own milieu and has its own worldview. And just just this like beautiful thing that has no trappings of being Disney. It's great. I love it. I'm way more about the fun 
childlike movies like ponyo is my favorite ghibli like mm-hmm. like kiki's delivery service like spirited away like the others are great too but at the end of the day like the wind rises or when marnie was here or like huge bombers and they're great and they're beautiful but they don't have the same magic to me that like totoro does yeah yeah i, I see what you mean i was also similar to you i didn't watch um anything until a couple of, of years ago uh for me, similar Kiki's Delivery Service and Totoro are probably up there. No. Uh, they, I think, yeah, it's interesting because Studio Ghibli, there are two things when I think about them. One is all of the standalone stuff that they make. Uh, you said it's it's beautiful animation. They are timeless movies. You can watch them today and they connect with you. They also have, especially these two movies that I kind of, I'm very into. They set a plot at the beginning, right? In Kiki's Delivery Service, Kiki moves into the city. In My Neighbor Totoro, this new family moves into the countryside. But then there isn't really a plot. You know, they're not trying to find Nemo. They're not trying to connect Wally. It's not Rapunzel trying to find what the lights mean. It's just, they're just telling you a story about what is happening with these characters at this point in their lives. And, you know, there is not, oh, they have to resolve this by the end. And it's different and it's refreshing and it might be weird a little bit like when you watch them for the first time because you're like, well, what is the point of this? But I I really enjoyed it. And the second thing when I think of them is, and I think we talked a little bit during uh, the animation one, is kind of the influence that they have in Western animation and how important culturally they become because of kind of what comes after. Um, There are stories of John Lasseter being a big fan or other animators and kind of feeding of a lot of things that Studio Ghibli has done. Like you mentioned, it is interesting because I think some of the things that hold the best are now like 20 years old. Yeah. Uh, Castle in the Sky, Kika's Delivery Service, uh, Pom Combo, Pom, 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 uh, Spirit of the Waste, 20 years old next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. And I think it's also interesting to bring them up because not a lot of people know about Studio Ghibli and they are kind of coming back because they are part of HBO yeah. Max. And not only are they part, but you go down and, you know, there is like this huge section for DC and this huge section for whatever. And there is a big central section for Studio Ghibli, which I think is great and hopefully increases people's knowledge about them. That's something, uh, the point you had around it being kind of imported into our culture is really interesting. And something that I'm like kind of reckoning with here is just, I have an aversion to, to animate typically. It's just... I can't quite like mentally connect with it or emotionally connect with it and Ghibli I can and I I wonder how much of that is just me trying more because it is something that has like been told to me is like great and worth trying and like Mm -hmm. worth engaging with versus like it like primarily being better than other Japanese animation like it's kind of fetishy and it's like kind of weird and, and not great there. But like it is, it is beautiful and it's really cool. And um, I, I think it's something that did kind of radically shift how I do look at animation and how I look at how we culturally engage with it. It is like it's it's something so cool about how timeless these these movies are, and also the fact that like so many of them are hand drawn and still hand drawn, and just it's about preserving serenity in an art form and artistic merit above all else yeah 
I think like also now as we speak, uh, just a, another thing came to my mind of something that I, I think I really appreciate about them. You know, now it said how a lot of uh, animated movies are also for adults, right? And adults also no. get it, or there's also something that they can connect with. But they are still very, they still are very simplistic in the way that they tell the story or how much they have to explain something for something to make sense, right? You, They kind of have to walk the audience a lot through kind of what is happening, where does something come from, why something like this. Mm-hmm. And Studio Ghibli doesn't do that, at least yeah. in like this movie. Like I think Totoro is a great example. They don't tell you anything at all about no. who Totoro is, what he is, where he's from, if there are others, why he talks, why he hangs out with them, why he has a cat that it's a boss. And they don't ex I feel like it uh Ariel always talks with books about how it's good to let the audience decide and come up with things and not assume that they are naive and dumb yeah. and they're not going to understand something. And I feel like that opens a lot of possibilities into how to tell a story or the meaning that something can have. So I think like, I don't know if it's super um, conscious of them, but I think it's something that I really appreciate. I mean, that's exactly why like a new hope is good. And solo is bad. Like a new hope is, I'm a scrappy filmmaker making this thing with a, a world and I don't have time to think about or come up with a backstory for whatever the Clone Wars is. Like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. like see these cool phrases and have these cool gadgets and have like the world feel lived in and beautiful. And like these characters are not conscious of the world they're in. They're just like conscious of the life they're experiencing. Whereas Solo, it's like, well, in order for you to understand who Han Solo is, you need to understand the Millennium Falcon is a Corellian freighter that runs on coaxium to power its hyperdrive. There's also an onboard computer. Like, you have to understand, like, the schematics of how a ship works for the plot to, like, matter to you. Like, it, it's just, it's different. And it's not hard sci-fi. Like, something like, I mentioned Arthur mm-hmm. C. Clarke earlier, like, or Sushin Liu. Like, hard sci-fi is great because part of the thrill of reading hard sci-fi is like kind of learning and expanding how you're thinking about scientific concepts. Whereas that's just like, Oh, it's made up nonsense things that get thrown together. That means something like that has no emotional texture at all. When we make uh, the first t-shirt from our podcast is going to be, <laughs> if you ever wonder how studio Ghibli is connected to star Wars, <laughs> come <laughs> listen to us. Cause we're going to connect yeah. them for you. Do you know about Miyazaki's economic mandate on toy merchandise. Please continue. Oh, this, is, this is great. So Miyazaki is, I believe, if not the only owner of Ghibli, like the majority owner. I mean, he has to be because like, he runs this thing like a tight ship and at his whims, and he's just focused on making what he wants to make and supporting other artists that he likes. And early on, so many people wanted him to make toys, especially with, like, Totoro coming out in, what was it, like, 89? They're like, you could make Mm -hmm. so many Totoro toys, you could have so much money, like, you could fund the studio forever. Most of the Ghibli toys you see out there are, like, fakes. They're not officially licensed or, or anything, but he doesn't prosecute around that, and it's because he didn't want to ever put his name on anything that wasn't, like, up to Ghibli quality. So, like... It wasn't until a few years ago that she started seeing those beautiful, like, really textured, soft, like, Totoro's out. And they're made by Gund, the, like, high-end teddy bear manufacturer. Because they had to, like, they made samples and brought him one and were like, is this your standard? And he agreed. But 
apparently one year they were making too much money from licensing and he said that like he set a number with his accounting team where he was like i never want to make more than this in toy licensing like don't make this happen and his accountants hid from him that he was making too much money on toys and he fired them that's how seriously he takes this it is truly the anti Disney. <laughs> yeah, because also it has an impact on so many levels. Of, yeah. uh, you were taking a long time to answer the first question of uh, the AUA or the second one. <laughs> uh, when you start dealing with that and you start relying on these other things, it takes away from the art, right? When you start worrying that your character that you're building it's and it's going to come out in a movie in three years might not sell enough plushes, you might change it. And I feel like it's a, it's a very creative centric or movie centric way of thinking about the world which is even if we do it down the road it has to be a consequence of whatever we have in the movie because that's our standard as yeah. opposed to making decisions based on you know i don't even remember if it happened but star wars needs to mention batu because there's a theme park coming or whatever crap yeah which i think it's also very interesting do they mention batu in star wars I don't. I don't think. I don't think in the movies. But okay. you know, I, I. I hope not. Was that where one of the MacGuffins was in Rise of Skywalker? One was of that the Coachella planet? Thousand MacGuffins. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Let's get out of Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is actually a conversation. Let's like continue this conversation around like film quality because another question we got was what we make of Netflix's announcement that they're going to try and make six animated movies a year in house. Like to, to me, this is something that, that is very similar to the Ghibli conversation. Ghibli takes like three to 10 years to make films because they are like trying to do it their way and like crafty an artisanal object that stands the test of time. And like the company will go through fallow periods where like they can barely afford to stay open because they haven't released a film or, like, they release a bomb and they spend all this time, like, trying to do it. But, like, it, it does make these films different in a different caliber, I think. Like, even just, like, if it's the the knowledge of the fact that this is a, like, rare special thing. Right. And I, you know, Netflix has done, they did Klaus, they're doing Pinocchio. But uh, two things. The first thing. Uh, when I look at these things, and I'm thinking strategically in general, anything in my life, right? And somebody tells me they're going to do something that nobody else is doing, right? Mm -hmm. I, the first thing I think about is, okay, why hasn't anyone done this before, yeah. right? What do you have that makes you better or that makes you uniquely situated to do this when people that have more experience than you or that do this all the time can't? And the first thing that I think about is like, okay, Disney Animation releases one movie a year. Pixar just moved to a year, and it's basically one good and one bad a year. Everyone else makes at most one, right? So, okay, these are incredibly expensive to make in money, in time, in focus, in there is only enough high-quality animators to be able to do right. high-quality stuff. And half of them work in video games. Like, yeah. As they maybe should, based on profitability or whatever. And I would love to get your thoughts on that. But first, the the other side of this is today Netflix announced earnings and Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO now, was saying that somebody asked him, do you see a trade-off in quality versus quantity, right? You're going to try to make six move, six animated movies a year that are going to be very, you know, quote-unquote high quality. And he said he doesn't see a trade-off. 
And there are two ways he can be thinking about it, right? One is my level, my bar for quality is lower than everyone else's, so I don't mm-hmm. see a trade-off because I see quality differently. The second is I don't have a problem spending the resources that I have to in order to make this work. And he didn't say a trade-off in the next year. He said a trade-off in the next couple of years. So for the next, whatever, 24 movies. And we just talked last week about how Netflix costs continue to rise basically at the speed of revenues. And the assumption has to be that this has to plateau soon. And they seem to not be doing that at all. And, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. They have the data, but I just don't see it long term. Anyway, that was a lot. Carl, thoughts? Well, I think the point about talent is really interesting because there just aren't enough animators out there that have worked on products, projects of this scale. And animation is a collaborative art form. It's not like a filmmaker who has their iPhone and can go shoot a movie on the streets of LA in two days. Like you can't do that with animation, like not at the scale where it's going to be a feature release and competing with onward or whatever. Like there are very people, people that have done this and because of how limited and exclusive computer animation was, and even traditional animation, there are very few people who have led projects like this at Mm -hmm. this scale and those that have are very white and very male as well. So it's it's a lot of people that are going to be like learning at once. And that could be a creative boon. I mean, that's what Pixar was. That's what like half of the great studios are is a bunch of people like that are really smart and really driven creating lots of good things. But I don't necessarily know if in an evolving Netflix that's going to be the case more than like they have more of a mandate of let's make sure this gets out by christmas or just like we're gonna kill the project now i don't get it i don't see it yeah i I hear i'm always (laughs) i try to hedge my takes and you know be like they know more things they have data i i don't see it i don't see them doing six animated movies a year of good quality i'm not gonna say disney quality pixar quality spider-man into the spider-verse quality you know good movies yeah it seems yeah. Like, Netflix's best movie would be Onward, right? Like, it's something right. where it's just like, that was cute, that was cool. That's how I, God, I'm going to get shade for this, but that's how I feel about how I train your, how to train your dragon. Like, how to train your dragon's fine, but like, it's, it's a high bar for DreamWorks, whereas it's like pretty middle of the road fantasy with a good John Powell score to me. Like, it, it's, if Pixar released it, it would be onward. Like, it's really not that interesting. It just was somebody playing in that space after it laid, lay fallow for a little bit. And also in a way that was unique and different than Disney, which I'm here for. And that's like where stuff like Ghibli shines, but I don't know. And or stuff like, even like, like Leica, like I think Leica is a fascinating company that is doing mm-hmm. a lot of really interesting things, but it's because they're cautious and, take big they're they're not cautious they take big risks but they like are precious that's what i meant with their resources yeah and that's also when i try to think of the you know netflix plays this this is let me know if this makes sense netflix plays for the average right maybe he Mm -hmm. thinks i want them to be average in quality they're going to be good 
average, but there's yeah. going to be discrepancy between them. Of course, this is not exact. Like Netflix plays for niches of people to watch mm-hmm. and keep everyone kind of at the same level. And six animated movies. I don't know if you can segment your audience as much based on yeah. topic or type of animation. It seems like more tailored. But also, on, on the other side, we talked also a couple of weeks ago how animated movies might be the way to go for the next yeah. year, at least, with production stopped. Yeah, I I agree with what you're saying about them making the average, because, like, take, uh, take, like, Ryan Murphy working for Netflix. Ryan Murphy's output on Netflix is prodigious in the amount that he's doing and the amount that he is driving, like, Netflix's social team. But at the same time, a lot of people don't think it's his best work, but it is enough that, like, people that like Ryan Murphy and the, like, ilk of people inspired by Ryan Murphy really like the Ryan Murphy stuff on Netflix. Like, they, they want to find a way to, like, get you what you want. And they're very good at targeting and, like, something... And a lot of their shows are, like, incredible wa- watchable too great. But... All in all, they are like they're not striving to like make the best thing. They're tr- they're striving to make the best approximation of like a great thing they can. If that makes sense, I think that makes sense. And I think also when, of course, pre-COVID, right? When yeah. you think of watching a movie on Netflix versus going to the movie theater, the steps that you have to go to go watch a movie are higher than what you need for Netflix. Yeah, and. You know, if they are going for, I just need somebody in a couch to click on it, as opposed to, oh, it's going to be in the movie theaters. I need someone to go and pay extra to watch it. Again, the version of what quality means, it's different. Yeah. I agree. Anyway, um, talking about Netflix, this is a little tangent from um, animation, but we also got a question of what does Netflix mean when they say, something that they released got X amount of views. And this basically came out from, I think last week was the first time, well, it came out that um, the movie with um, Charlie Theron, The Old Guard, got something yeah. like 60 million views or whatever. And this week they said that, um, what was it? Norse Ratchet got... 75 million viewers, yeah. 75 million appointments to right. Ratchet. And then today... They announced that Enola Holmes has 76 million views, and American Murder, 52 million views, and whatever, whatever, whatever. Context. Avengers Endgame, the most successful movie of all time, the most tickets sold, probably was in the pop culture for three months or four months, was watched by 100 million people. Yeah. The moon landing was watched by, like, 120 million people. Like... (laughs) <laughs> it's what I mean okay in, in America like which is what I'm getting at but it's it's weird so the they are like known for fishy numbers they've been known for fishy numbers forever the big the first time people were really scratching their heads was with Bird Box when they announced that 40 million people watched it within the first week and they were like look at all the social media and engagement and it's like yeah all the social media engagement feels like people that you paid to post GIFs like it's nobody losing their mind for bird box here. And then they announced six months after that, that they were switching their metrics from counting. Like before this, you had to watch like a certain amount of a movie or a TV show for it to count as a watch. And now they just say the first two minutes. 
which is the most like, ridiculous thing. That's like a measure of like a YouTube engagement. That's like a, not a measure of, of premium content. So yeah, 75 million people clicked on Ratchet, probably not because they love the characters and worlds of Ken Kesey, but more because they... They had autoplay on. They had autoplay <laughs> on, or they didn't know what it was, or just like they like Sarah Paulson, like which who who doesn't like Sarah Paulson, and it's and then they turned it off three minutes in because they're like, they I don't care about this this thing. It's there's no way seventy five million people watched and cared about that. They said seventy eight million people watched Anola Holmes, which I could see seventy eight million people idly turning it on and watching part of it or all of it. Like I I can kind of see that, but. Even that, 78 is way too high. <laughs> it's way too high. Yeah. And then also, I think today during the the other side of this, which you, let's say, you know, numbers, dumb. It doesn't matter. Uh, they also said something about how they have, you know, Netflix doesn't have box office tickets, but they say something along the lines of, and all of these movies are generating millions of box office dollars in terms of pop culture impact or culture <laughs> moment that are taking and i see the list of these movies and i'm like i've heard about enola holmes sure i don't know what american murder is i haven't even heard about it old guard i saw the trailer once because i have outplay on and i haven't watched it and nobody i know has mentioned it project power 75 million people what the hell is that Damn. what pop culture moment is any of these having the kissing booth two did you know there was a kissing booth one yeah, I did. It's oh, okay. problematic. Yeah. <laughs> the I mean, the old guard, the only reason I even engaged with the old guard was because Gina Prince-Bythewood directed it. And a lot of people I engage with, with film, like like her and have seen some of the other films. And I watched Beyond the Lights, which is great. And then I watched this and I was like, okay, this was fine. This is remarkable in ways like that are different than the average, like, like third-party comic book adaptation but it's not that remarkable all in all i don't know just <sighs> yeah the other side of this we've gotten comments that we're too harsh on netflix but again last week if you haven't heard go listen we talked about how netflix is betting on building a back catalog of things so that whenever they slow down a little bit their content creation people go for them and for in order for people to go for them there actually has to be some sort of cultural connection that people has to these things so that they when they see it appear in five years they're like oh yeah the old guard i remember carl mentioned it in a podcast or somebody yeah. told me to watch it or whatever and none of none of these are doing it right i mean you have to think about it like a blockbuster right like way back in the day at a video rental store you had the majority of your inventory is dedicated to stuff that came out within the last year or two or not the majority, but like a almost the majority. And then the rest of stuff is library content. And you have to like be pretty choosy about what's in your library. Like unless you have a lot of space, because you have to think of things that are gonna stand the test of time that somebody's gonna wanna buy or like wanna rent enough that it's worth you spending the three hundred bucks on a VHS that's like rentable legally. Like it's you have to be precious with what you're like licensing. That's like a cheap version of licensing there. And if everybody pulled all their content from Netflix and you were just left with Netflix content, like 10 years from now, most of the stuff is not going to be that relevant. Three years from now, stuff's not going to be relevant. <sighs> yeah. Sigh. A sigh to Netflix. So Netflix, just go buy MGM. Your problems are solved. Done. 
I, I, I did it for you. You can give me a consulting fee. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and we were, yeah, just to close out Netflix, we were, both of us were having an interesting conversation with Julia Alexander from The Verge today on Twitter. Uh, and all of this also goes back to the point of how uh, Netflix does expect an ROI directly from their movies because they only make money from subscriptions. So both talking about animated movies, but also this other stuff that they say has 70 million views and why, you know, people try to compare and say like, oh, and why isn't Disney Plus releasing numbers? Or why isn't Peacock or HBO Max or whatever? And it's like, they are not apples to apples. They are different in what they need to do. Yeah. And we just talked a little bit about how, even if these numbers were true, you can't compare them to box office tickets. Because if this movie was in the movie theater, it wouldn't get those numbers. It's a different thing. It's a different friction. It's a different cost. Yeah. It's, it's just different. So... Right, like you're not competing on an open market, you're competing on a wild, wild garden, which like good for you, you own the garden with the most people, that's great, that's what you should do, but like as far as making sure people don't defect to other gardens, it's like not the best strategy. Huh. Talking I love that about... You, I love that you oh. name dropped a author or a writer for The Verge, like we were like chummy with her and all it is, we talk back and forth in comments on Twitter, but... That's what Twitter is, Take it till you make conference yeah. very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking about walled gardens, the other section of questions were that we got a lot were, were around theme parks. Uh, Carl, I think I'm better today at segways than you are. I just stopped trying. So the first question around theme parks came from our good friend Sam Parker, who also saw this thread on Twitter that basically said, Somebody just gave you $1 billion to build a theme park based on any film. What are you building? And he asked us, he told us that he needed to hear our takes on this. First take, $1 billion, not enough. Carl, what would you build with $1 billion? I could make a billion dollars work with my idea, totally. Okay, so are you familiar with Popeye's Village in Malta? I think I heard about this in podcast, right? Yeah, they, they talk, they've mentioned it every once in a while. Like, it is an insane and great thing. So, speaking of an insane and great things, the 1980 Robert Altman Popeyes movie. Uh, it is this strange and bizarre, like, sedate musical. It's worth watching. It's, like, Robin Williams in a really early role. It was shot in Malta in, like, a... Like a dockside town set that they built but they built it as a functioning town because nothing was in this area and tldr the maltese government kept it there and preserved it and it's now a theme park where it's a popeyes movie themed theme park that you can go hang out in for the day <laughs> so it's like a popeyes the movie the set the theme park exactly yeah okay so you're just like you're going and hanging out It'd be like James Cameron having like a, a Titanic theme park or something, which like that's a great idea. Maybe that should be my idea. But anyway, like I really like this thing because it's like experiential, which is like pre-COVID is like the big thing. People want experiences. They don't just want to stay at home or stay in a theme park. It's food based. Millennials love food and love traveling for food. And it's yes, based do. off of 80s nostalgia. And thousands nostalgia i'm of course talking about the mama mia theme park that i want to build 
in Mykonos. <laughs> so, so you want to build Mykonos? You want to build Mykonos on in Mykonos? Yeah, essentially. Like I, I like or like near Mykonos. Like I just want to get an island, build the like hotel and like everything from the movie Mamma Mia, and then it's like Mamma Mia Westworld. You just like hang out, eat good food, you watch all the drama unfold, you watch people sing. You drink lots of good wine and news, though, and that's your weekend. You just spend three. It's like the the Disney Star Wars hotel, except you're in a beautiful Greek island, listening to ABBA sung for you, and just like having a great time. <laughs> I, like, I just thought of you, like walking into the park, and then random people spontaneously bursting into song. Layer your love on me. While wearing, yeah. you know, snorkel gear and the things you used to flap on the water and lay all your love <laughs> on me. And Carl being super happy with like a cocktail in his hand. Exactly. Dancing behind them. I don't know. It sounds great to me. Like you could have themed weekend, like like a bachelorette the weekend, like where like you have three random guys come and compete for the prize of her love. I don't know. I'm spitballing here. But a billion dollars could go a long way for this. Like, I think I could buy an island, build this, and then run it at a deficit for, like, decades. I think it sounds great. It does sound great. If you build it, please invite me. I can I, I can cover it in the podcast. I can be media. There we go. Yeah. Okay. I will definitely get us a uh, podcast credential for okay. uh, covering this. Then worth yeah. it. I think this is exactly what Sam had in mind when he forwarded this question. Probably. <laughs> What about you? Before answering, I would say I should say that the one billion comment was in context of things like Galaxy's Edge, just one <laughs> land being more worth more than a billion dollars. Uh, I have to say I'm I'm going with my gut. The first thing that came to mind when I saw his tweet was a piece of culture that I'm very fond of, both in book form and in movie form, and that is Lord of the Rings. It's uh an incredibly immersive world. It's already divided into lands, which the best part about theme parks is learning the lands, of course. You would have the Shire, where it has, you know, the kids section. You would have Isengard with a drop tower. You would have, you know, uh, the Misty Mountains and Smog doing something. You would have uh, Minas Tirith being a dark ride. It's perfect. It's set up. There is food set up there is beer there is second breakfast there is songs there are languages and i think it would be great if i be honest i don't think it would work <laughs> because i don't know if the connection is as strong but also it's it has big like renaissance fair energy i'm gonna be honest here <laughs> right and then also i don't know if it would work which this might get to taking the question too seriously I don't know if any theme park would work if it's based in only one movie. I would love to get your thoughts on this or in one piece of content. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like the, the point, unfortunately similar to Netflix, is you need to have enough to bring enough people and having a lot of, a, a little something of a lot works pretty well. Uh, even if you think about super, super IP heavy parks like yeah. Islands of Adventure that has like Harry Potter and Jurassic World and King mm -hmm. Kong and the Marvel comics and Dr. Seuss is a combination of those that makes it shine. Yeah. Uh, so sorry, random Twitter user that posed the question to that Sam found, but uh, 
I don't know if I would go that route if I had the money. <laughs> Should we post this episode in response to that tweet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> With Here's a timestamp. 20 minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So I want to answer, I want to comment on this in a second, but I do want to answer your question about like kind of mono culture parks. Uh, I think it could work if it's something as like massive and expanded universe as something like Star Wars or, uh, like Star Trek has like a Dubai theme park somewhere. I think like I think I think it could work, but like only if you spend like Galaxy's Edge money on it and like make it immersive and cool and fun, but like massive and theme park sized. Um, Lions Gate is kind of the laughing stock of the themed entertainment community because like for years they've been trying to build something. Like they just announced a John Wick roller coaster, like which like <laughs> okay. they're gonna put it in a theme park. They finally like succumbed and were like, okay, well like. Give the rights to somebody else. Cool, whatever. But they could just free... play you the movie. That's a roller coaster. Hey, oh. Yeah. Wait, Carl, have you watched yeah. John Wick? I still haven't watched John Wick. Oh my god. I I know this okay, is a big thing. That. I'm not anti John Wick. We're gonna watch it, and I was saving it for you, and then like it got hard to find time over the two years we planned to watch it. Anyway, uh the one thing that they wanted to do for years was they like basically wanted to buy land in Appalachia and like build a district 12 theme park from the hunger games. What? <laughs> That's so depressing. Yeah. They just wanted to recreate district 12, you know, the like saddest central part of the hunger games. I don't know. What are they going to build? Literally like the, the capital? Like, I, I don't know. It's weird. And it's like, that's not a great fit. They also wanted to take over like, basically the old Toys R Us in Times Square and turned it into like Lionsgate land. But it was going to be like, they were literally going to have a Mad Men like restaurant. And then guess what their Hunger Games activation was going to be? Learning how to shoot bow and arrow. That would actually be cool. Bow and arrow shooting dark, right? No? Okay. It's a, uh, it's Peter Malark's bakery. (laughs) 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 so i think this is like the worst case scenario of like monoculture theme parks (laughs) oh my god that sounds awful uh anyway to get back to your thing about lord of the rings i think it's a great idea i think it's definitely ripe like I bet it's something with, like, the Tolkien estate or something that's preventing it from being made or, like, I don't know. All the rights are up in the air with, like, New Line and Warner Brothers and everything's too, so who knows? Like Amazon just there. has something, right? Yeah, Amazon, like, is working on, like, Amazon's filming some, like, big, big stuff with Lord of the Rings. That they're, like, doing, like, an entire show. So there might be development on this front. I do have an augmentation, though. I'm going to plus it up a little bit. Please. So you, you call it, like, the Shire of the Kids World, but what if instead of like there just being like a kid's area in the Shire, instead the entire plot of the Hobbit is just the kids land. And like it, you go to all the actual locations and stuff that are in the later books. And then like, it's just kind of like the kids land is woven throughout the tapestry of the whole park instead. That would be cute because it touches very close to my heart. For those of you not familiar with the books, the Hobbit is a children's book. (laughs) <laughs> it's very short. It's probably half the size of any one book of The Lord of the Rings. And they made three movies out of it. And they only yeah. made three movies out of The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, I have thoughts about this. 
But yes, I see The Hobbit as a children's book. That's cute. Yeah, and like it would be super fun and really cute, like a way to like actually give them the like full picture like engagement with this entity, while also just like taming it down some too. And it can be scary, like Merkwood's scary. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get to Rivendell, and then there is the adult Wraith, which is based on the Lord of the Rings part of the story, and then there is the yeah. kids Wraith based on the Hobbit part of the story when they're there. Oh, I like that. Thank you for posting yeah. it up. And then you can have like the Gollum encounter where like you send your kid in alone to a cave and then they come out five minutes later. <laughs> they answer riddles. <laughs> Precious. Oh man, now we should develop it. We should stop talking or they're gonna take all of our ideas. Yeah, very true. Like we should we should put this behind a paywall where I you mean, have to sign an NDA. <laughs> I mean, they're definitely better than Peter Malark's bakery. So don't tell me we can't design a theme park. <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna hunt nightmares with that. <laughs> so I bad. just like, I just like imagining that it's like an animatronic Josh Hutcherson with like <laughs> perfectly placed flour in his hair and like an apron. And it's just like he's oh, like, no. "Hey, Katniss, I no. love you." Stop! 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 <laughs> I don't want to go research these for three hours when we finish. <laughs> so going the opposite direction, we also had a question, which was, what do you think of turning IP from parks into movies? Mm-hmm. So the context for this was that Disney's doing another Haunted Mansion movie. This is in opposition to the 2003? Six? I think it's the Morphe. Let's see. Yeah. Like, the movie has Bush-era energy, but, like, I don't remember when it was. 2003. <sighs> yes. Yeah, 2003. Yeah, you got it. Have I have I told you my weird thing with, like, I see George the w. numbers? Bush? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> like, would you visualize a movie? How do you visualize it? Do you visualize, like, a poster? Do you visualize, like, the words? Do you visualize a logo? How do you visualize it? <laughs> I think I visualize a scene. Okay. Like, tell me a movie and I tell you what I think about Okay, The Matrix. Yeah, very, yeah. Uh, Neo, you know, avoiding the bullets as he dances yeah. limbo. This is how much the internet has broken my brain, is that when you say The Matrix to me, my brain is just, says, the the ma- sees the, the words, The Matrix, parentheses, 1999. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like an IMDb. Yeah, I like I don't have a great memory, especially for like names and like useful things, but as I have like a like bizarre memory technique when it comes to movies, which is just like I visualize the title of it with the year. So I'm usually pretty good at guessing. I don't want to be put on the spot here, but like yeah. Anyway. Nope, you've been very good. So yeah. I just saw the Haunted Mansion 2003 in my head and second-guessed myself, and I should have trusted my dumb, weird memory from every time I've read that Wikipedia page in the last, like, year for some reason. Which, unfortunately, is probably more times than you should have. Yeah. It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. But anyway, uh, where, the where question... do we stand on it? Yeah. So, uh, I think I'm on the record saying how much I enjoy original park IP mm-hmm. and how much I enjoy having different creative minds come up with stories that are not yeah. based on 
in my mind, storytelling is different based on the medium that you're using, right? If you are reading a book or you're writing a book, you tell the story differently if you're doing a movie or if you're doing a ride. Some of the most successful theme park rides for me are originals, uh, whether, you know, Big Thunder Mountain mm -hmm. or um, Pirates of the Caribbean at the time or Haunted Mansion. And so kind of from that perspective, I'm all in for taking something that came from somewhere different and trying to tell a story based on it. Having said that, what I don't like is that it seems like throughout that process, they end up imprinting the same principles of movie creation that they would. Yeah. Of how different it ends up being, or, you know, over Haunted Mansion, it became an Eddie Murphy movie because they were like, mm -hmm. oh, Eddie Murphy, now let's make a movie of him in this setting. I think there aren't a lot of examples. I think the biggest examples, probably the most successful is Pirates of the Caribbean. I think the first one especially was like pretty good. I really like yeah. it. It's not really connected to the theme park, right? Again, they build it up, but I think it, it does a good job. Tomorrowland, we probably can spend a day, talk a day, an episode talking about Tomorrowland. Um, Haunted Mansion is pretty bad. Jungle Cruise is coming yeah. with The Rock and Emily Blunt, which again seems to be that they took it and were like, we're going to put The Rock and Emily Blunt, two of the biggest stars in the world, and we're going to tell and a story Jamie about Jamie Sarah, who's an interesting and funny director. Like, I'm on the record of being into that movie just because I really like... Uh, what's the what's the Liam Neeson movie with the airplane? Non Nonstop? Is that the movie? Yeah, know. Nonstop. I like Nonstop. It's funny. So... <laughs> I have big hopes for Jungle Cruise because I love the ride and I'm a big, big pun guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I'm not saying that I'm not going to be into it. It's just, yeah, I wish, I wish it was something maybe a little bit different. Like when I think of a big Thunder movie, yeah. whenever that happens, it probably looks different in my mind than in a Disney yeah. studio executive. <laughs> Again, in my mind, it might not be a successful movie, but like I'd rather have this than remakes of animated movies. Yeah, I'm I'm there with you. Uh, so, that's right. So, Nora Ephron, the filmmaker and writer, she had a phrase that she learned from her mother, which is that everything is copy, meaning that everything in your life can be used to generate a story, like as a as a news writer, and that's kind of what this feels like. It's just everything is IP. Everything is just you're able to to take it and transmute it and put it somewhere else in the park or in life or in a movie or a book and then it's more valuable than if it's just like its own thing and i think that that can work there's nothing wrong with that inherently i think that's actually a really useful way to generate ideas within your enterprise but ultimately i i don't think there's like naturally a delineation between art forms and like adaptations so people are like the book's always better the book's not always better it's just like sometimes yeah. the thing you get out of a book you get more out of it than a movie or sometimes a director reads a pretty trashy book and it's just like oh i'm gonna make a great movie from this kind of like on the energy of that and like it becomes something more in the conversion process and i think ultimately a lot of theme park rides like it's so much about the experience of riding and being in like the vibes of a spooky mansion or of like a of a caribbean seaside town that's being pillaged by pirates like 
it's about the energy of being in the scene and being in the room and having fun and like being a little scared or in awe and that's something that like you can't really capture that energy in a film you can maybe capture it in a video game like it's, it's just difficult and there's so much like exposition that you have to do in order to like capture that and actually make it into something yeah and i think that's interesting because i think maybe the difference is that well these original theme park rides that we've been talking about they are kind of known for being very story agnostic right parts of the caribbean ariela to this day writes it and is like what the hell is the story like you start in a place where there are like skeletons and then you no. go to this town and then you're out and like you, there is no story, right? Jungle Cruise doesn't have story. Big Thunder Mountain doesn't have story. And that, that I, I agree with kind of your point. I think something that maybe could be interesting is there are a couple of rights from the most modern original era. There is right. uh, the Phantom Manor in Hong Kong and the Hollywood Tower of Terror version of Tokyo mm-hmm. Disneyland which is also based on kind of this, uh, okay, I just thought of the perfect movie that I wish to see from movie from theme parks, but I'll see it in a bit. They are based on these characters that are like explorers, and there is a mm-hmm. story of what happens, and they tell you the story throughout the ride of what happened to them, where it came from, blah, blah, blah. And that seems to be something easier to do. The other side, which is what I just thought, is that there is a lot of backstory in the theme parks that people don't know about, right? That they, that they yeah. imagineers spend a lot of time woven into decorations or the items that turn into lines. And they have one that it's throughout all the parks and it's called the, you're going to know it. I, I'm blanking on the name. The Society of Adventurers Explorers. What's the name? Explorers and Adventurers. Yeah, it's C. <laughs> S-E-A. Society of Explorers okay. and Adventurers. Yeah. Right, exactly. And yeah. it's like this. I feel like a movie about that would be great. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't disagree there. Uh, I, right now, like, for years have been. So, I, for years, I've been trying to find a way to defend the fact that I kind of secretly like the movie Tomorrowland, even though it's bad. And I finally think I figured out how I defend it here, which is that. It's kind of like the best adaptation of a theme park that I've seen. Like, it's not good. It's like a convoluted convoluted movie that, like, is trying really, really hard not to be Randy and an objectivist, but still kind of manages to be. But when it works, it really works. And it really captures the idea of, like, wanting to, like, go to a futuristic perfect space like the titular Tomorrowland, which is this concept that exists in the Disney theme parks, and, like, the promise of the 1964 World's Fair. And ultimately, you can't do that because it's built upon, like, a lie, which is that these things are built upon systems that were meant to exclude people and meant to, like, keep them out. And, like... Mm -hmm. It's this, like, meta-commentary on, like, the theme park ride and its purpose in society. And I think that's really cool. That's totally not what Brad Bird meant to do. But, like, I think that's what I get out of that. And I think that's, like, the sort of thing I want to see. But, like, I also am wearing a Last Jedi sweatshirt because it's, like, a a meta-analysis of Star Wars. So, like, I'm just here for that. <laughs> yeah. Anything anything theme parks, honestly, is great. Yeah. Anything theme parks is great. 
moving on to the last question of the <laughs> podcast, which comes from Ariella. And she basically looked at me today and was like, wait, why haven't we watched and why haven't you talked with Carl about Class Action Park? And why the hell haven't we? I guess because I haven't seen it, but... Well, yeah, because you haven't seen it. One, that's number one. Two, we're not cool enough to, like, engage with Action Park. Like, Action Park is so funny because it's, like, just this... It's a bunch of crazy people in an old ski town in New York or Jersey? I think Jersey. Jersey, yeah. Everything's legal in New Jersey. It's just a bunch of people put together their own theme park in a ski town to, like, try and uh, make money during the off-season, and it's this corrupt, beautiful thing, and, like, lots of people get killed or got killed or, or hurt, and I don't know. The reason I haven't talked about it is because it's something that, like, aesthetically I'm not that interested in, and also people like Podcast the Ride cover it better. <laughs> but, I mean... Yes, but you know we are not competing with anyone. I think we just want to give our take. And Class Action Park is HBO's Max documentary about Action Park, mm-hmm. and you know we love theme parks, and I really want to engage with content about the concept of a theme park, like you yeah. were talking about, and the role that it plays into people's lives, and how wrong it can go, yeah. and how it looks when that happens. It. So we should we should put it in the in the docket and maybe. Use uh, do an episode about it. Yeah, I'm totally can, down to do give, it. We can also this way give time to listeners to watch Class Action Park on HBO Max or listen to Podcast Ride episodes on it, <laughs> and then we'll all do it together. I like that the show has just become us talking about another podcast that uh, we list, both listen to every week. <laughs> it's going to continue to happen. Come on, just lean into it. It's very, very true. Yeah, it's fun. That's why we're doing this is because we engage with so much of the same stuff sometimes. Uh, well, on that note, thanks for listening, everyone. This is great. I Like I said, I feel so much more comfortable doing this than I did before. I do want to remind you just, like, please keep engaging with us. Like, we love that we actually have a listener base and it's so exciting to hear from everyone and to hear from new people. So thank you for listening. And, and also to let us know what you want to hear about, like whether it's through this forum or uh, our friend and classmate, Jess from school sent us a, a note about wanting an episode on the economics of comedy and how like everything from comedy specials to comedy movies get made and funded and it's a really interesting world, and I'd love to do something like that. So thank you. We will definitely do that, Jess. And I think there's a lot of inf- information and stuff to plumb there. But, like, be like Jess. Let us know what you want to hear about. <laughs> be like Jess. That's also a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> be like Jess. Yeah, we're we're definitely enjoying the, the ride. Uh, we do this because we enjoy doing it, and we continue to hope that you find some enjoyment in it as well. That makes us very, very happy. I mean... And a little bit proud also, which is great. Yeah. And one day we can all have a live meetup together and go to Pita's Bakery <laughs> no. for a scone. Go to Carl's Mamma Mia's theme park <laughs> on Mykonos. That sounds way better. Anyway, thank you everyone so much for listening. Please remember to follow us on Twitter to see our interactions with our 
friends, even though Carl doesn't think we're friends. And uh, <laughs> let us know if there is anything you would like to listen to us talk about or questions. I'm just making Carl laugh here. Yeah. I mean, I only have one friend I know of for sure, and he's right here looking at me virtually. Uh... So that's a lie. Anyway. What is it then? Anyway. On that awkward note, see you later. <laughs> Talk to you next week. Bye.